before my wife, Ashley, and I decided to get married, we dated for about a year and a half. During this time, we got to know each other, of course. I discovered some of the things that she loves most. I learned about her dreams and the things that she values. I also learned what her expectations were for marriage. Of course, I didn't know everything about her after a year and a half. I didn't have a detailed file of her history, but I developed an understanding of who the real Ashley is, right? Unfortunately, the other day, I actually learned that Ashley and I did it all wrong. I learned some behind-the-scenes information about The Bachelor. Who here watches The Bachelor? Show of hands. Anyone? No? Okay. I, okay, all right. I don't either. Um, I've never seen this reality show, but apparently it involves a man having to choose between a bunch of women uh, which one he wants to marry. So over the course of a season, the man kicks the women off the show. No, doesn't kick them. Kicks them off the show, one by one, until only one is left, and then he proposes to her. And all of this is filmed over the course of about seven weeks, I learned. That's right. This man goes from not knowing any of these women at all to proposing to one of them in just seven weeks. That's less than two months. Ashley, what were we thinking? We could have had a whole extra year of marriage if we had only followed the expert example of these lovely folks on The Bachelor. Am I right? Um, well, at least this is what I have been thinking until I did a little more research. You see, there have been 26 seasons of The Bachelor, so one woman... Or so, uh, so far, that's 26 times that the bachelor has narrowed it down to one woman, right? So roughly 26 proposals. Well, I was wondering, uh, how many of these 26 couples are still together today? So I found out. But before I let you know, does, uh, how many do you guys think are still together? Let's shout out some guesses. Out of the 26 couples, how many do you think are still together? Two. Two? Ten? Five? I heard the right answer. <laughs> the right answer is one. Only one of these 26 couples is still together. That's about a 4% success rate. So maybe it was a good idea after all for Ashley and I to wait a little longer than seven weeks to decide to get married. Truthfully, though, we should not be surprised about this statistic from The Bachelor. Not only is it a very limited amount of time, but there are also cameras on the contestants at all times they're actually not allowed to interact with each other unless they're being filmed. How could we possibly expect them to actually get to know each other in any way that is suitable for a meaningful, lasting relationship? Not to mention expectations for the marriage, right? The numbers don't lie, right? On the other hand, though, Ashley and I were able to figure out each other's expectations for our marriage, count the cost, and make an informed decision. So, really, the point I'm trying to get across, though, is that committing to a serious relationship requires knowing the real person, and understanding the expectations for the relationship. Every relationship has expectations, and every relationship has a cost. Of course, this also applies, uh, this also applies to our relationship with Jesus. If anyone wants to, to really follow Jesus, they need to know the real Jesus and agree to his expectations for the relationship. And this is exactly what Jesus talks about in our passage this morning as uh, Mitch read earlier, it is Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, which can be found on page 874 of the Black Bibles. That's, again, Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. As you walk through the passage, let's consider this question. Who cannot be a disciple of Jesus? 
Who can I be? A disciple of Jesus. So, let's go to the passage. Luke 14.25 says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, or he turned and said to them, so right away we've, we've established Jesus' audience, a large crowd following behind him. As Pastor Mitch has brought up before in past sermons, uh, these are people who are curious about Jesus for one reason or another. Perhaps some of have even been cured by him, but they haven't yet committed to him. So he turns and he says to them, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does anyone else have this verse framed in a pretty font hanging on their wall? <laughs> Just me? Okay, well, let's make a list here. So, who, who cannot be my disciple? Anyone who does not their what does it say here? Father, mother, wife, brother, sister, something like that. Children. All right. So that's a pretty that's a big list, Jesus. Um, I think. First reaction to this is probably, "Wow, Jesus, that's pretty harsh." I thought you were about—I thought you were all about love, right? Um, and then for me, the next thing I think is, "Okay, so what does Jesus really mean here?" Because he wouldn't possibly tell people to literally hate their own family, right? I mean, eight chapters before this, Jesus tells people to love their enemies. So clearly, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to tell people to hate their family and themselves, but to love their enemies. One commenta- uh, commentary by Leon Morris puts it this way. The love that the disciple has for Jesus must be so great that the best of earthly loves is hatred by comparison. Jesus is using hyperbole to put great emphasis on this point. So just to make sure, are we going to go home today and say, uh, yeah, church was okay, except that Connor told us that Jesus wants us to hate our family. It's kind of, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what Jesus is saying. The point he is making is that any disciple of his will love him far greater than anyone else. So, Verse 27, um, and as we're going through this, I think it looks like we're getting an idea of the answer to this question as well. How great must our love for Jesus be in order to be his disciple? So verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So that's, we got a kind of um, a pattern here. He's saying anyone who does, or yeah, does not do this can, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. So... We've got bear own cross and come after me. So, who cannot be Jesus' disciple? Anyone who does not hate their family by comparison. I will write that. By comparison. I know, my handwriting is really good. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, Artistic. <laughs> yeah, fun way to put it. Um, so, <laughs> so, 
So hating family by comparison, hating our own life by comparison, um, bearing our own cross, coming after Jesus, going after him. So what does it mean to bear one's own cross? Well, these great crowds that Jesus is speaking to uh, would have immediately had an image come to mind with that phrase, perhaps even a personal memory. Again, Leon Morris writes, when a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. The cross was a method of execution, and a very horrific and painful one at that. And these people knew that. Imagine the shocked expressions among the crowd. What did he just say? Bear my own cross? It would have been shocking. Jesus is saying that a disciple is someone who chooses to die. Someone who is willingly dies to themselves, to their whole way of life, and instead goes after Jesus. Hating one's family, bearing one's cross, these are extreme statements that would elicit bewilderment and apprehension from the crowds, and Jesus knows that. Jesus continues in verse 28, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? This concept is actually, or, yeah, so the first, yeah, the first thing we should look notice about this verse is the word for at the very beginning. What, is, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm telling you about the high cost of being my disciple, because it would be wise for you to think about that cost in making this important decision. Similarly, the decision to build a tower is also an important one that requires sitting down and counting the cost, thinking about it. He continues, so for which of you uh, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So this concept is actually very familiar to me. Uh, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, hometown of LeBron James. I always have to say that. But uh, there happens to be just a, such a tower similar to the one mentioned in this parable in a neighboring town. In September 1971, Reverend Rex Humbard, a well-known televangelist at the time, began construction on what he intended to become a 750-foot tower with a rotating restaurant at the top. Pretty crazy. Only a couple months later, construction on the tower was halted just shy of, five, of 500 feet tall. While the primary reason that construction on the tower stopped remains an open issue, there is little doubt that financial problems were a part of it. And there the tower stands to this very day. Ugly and unfinished, now used only as a humble cell phone tower. Locals have come up with many nicknames over the years, one of them being Humbert's Folly. The tower's most well-known nickname is actually not appropriate to stay at church, but I think you get the idea. Rex failed to sit down and count the cost before beginning construction, and the end result was failure and mockery. Jesus gives another short parable, starting in verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So that's the second time Jesus says, sit down. So right, that seems like he's emphasizing that. <coughs> In both parables, yeah, so in these parables, Jesus is appealing to people's common sense, right? Before making an important decision, 
it is wise to sit down, calculate the cost, and deliberate, that is, to engage in long and careful consideration. We see the importance of counting the cost in action a few chapters later in Luke 18. A rich young ruler asked Jesus what it would take for him to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, uh, or, and although this man kept many of God's commandments, Jesus reveals that he is holding something back. Jesus tells the man to sell his possessions, give them to the poor, and follow him. Simple, right? But the man actually chooses his riches over Jesus. This rich young ruler decided that the cost was too much, so he declined Jesus' invitation. If we don't know the real cost, the real expectations, then we don't know the real Jesus, right? Jesus goes on to summarize some of his previous points in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's that phrase again, cannot be my disciple. So renounce. So anyone who does not renounce all that. All that they have. Every earthly thing they must treat as nothing in comparison to Jesus. Their, the thing, uh, their relationships, their possessions, their lifestyle, their favorite food, their addictions, the things that they love and the things that they hate. All those things must be treated as nothing in comparison to Jesus. He's saying, renounce all that you have. Uh, put me at the top of your list. At this point, at least some of these people... If, uh, are realizing that this Jesus guy is asking for a lot more than they bargained for. Jesus goes on in verse 40, 43. That's not right. 34. Um, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think most of us can agree with Jesus' first statement. Salt is good. We add it to countless foods for its flavor-enhancing nature. The ancient audience also knew that, of course. Additionally, salt can be used as a preservative. While this fact is not also nothing new to us, the ancient audience had a much greater appreciation for this property. This may come as a shock to some of you, but they didn't actually have modern refrigerators and freezers back then. But what about ice cream and frozen pizza? I know, it was a scary world. But anyway, these people relied on salt to keep things like meat from spoiling so they wouldn't starve. The second part of verse 34 may be puzzling to you if you are aware of the fact that salt is actually incapable of losing its saltiness. It is physically impossible. But, as commentator Leanne Morris points out, the salt in use in first century Palestine was far from pure. It was quite possible for the sodium chloride I know, big words, to be leached out of the impure salt in common use so that what was left lacked the taste of salt. This leftover substance was, just as Jesus says, literally useless. It was unable to provide any value, uh, even for fertilization or as compost. I bet you didn't think you'd be getting a chemistry lesson today, huh? Don't worry, I won't charge you. It's for, yeah, free of charge. Uh, Jesus ends the chapter, though, with these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if anyone among the crowd has an attitude of seriously wanting to follow Jesus and, and listen to how to do that, may that person understand and obey. 
these people would probably have understood what Jesus meant with this last statement about salt. Any disciple of mine who does not love me so much that all other concerns are meaningless in comparison is useless to the kingdom of God. In other words, if you are not serious about your discipleship, then it is of no use at all. When it comes down to it, this passage is really one big warning from Jesus. One big disclaimer. Anyone who comes to me without making me the Lord of their life cannot be my disciple. Anyone who comes to Jesus without making him the Lord of their life cannot be his disciple. I've got on the board here. Anyone. Let's say that together. Anyone, <coughs> sorry, anyone who comes to Jesus without making him the Lord of their life cannot be his disciple. And this warning inevitably leads us to one question. Why? Why would I or anyone else buy into what Jesus is selling? I don't know about you, but to me these things seem hard. Hating our... Everyone else, basically, in comparison to Jesus, bearing our own cross, suffering for Jesus, or being willing to at least, coming after him, going after him, renouncing all that we have, it's not a walk in the park. So why would we choose to follow Jesus? Well, who better to ask this question to than one of Jesus' most famous disciples, Paul? Paul was a man who was a Pharisee, which means that he was an expert in the Jewish law. That also means that, in general, these Pharisees, he was an enemy of Jesus. And he certainly was. He was an enemy of Jesus and of the early church. He persecuted Christians relentlessly. But out of nowhere, Jesus spoke to Paul from heaven and revealed himself as the one that Paul had been persecuting. Paul had thought that he was doing what was right, but he realized he was wrong when God revealed himself to Paul as Jesus. This miraculous encounter changed Paul, and a few days later, he was baptized as a Christian. In the New Living, in the New Living Translation of the Bible, Philippians 3, starting at verse 4, Paul writes these words. That's Philippians 3, starting at verse 4. He writes these words, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul goes on to talk about his respected lineage, his hard work as a scholar and a Pharisee, his passion for persecuting the first Christians, and his strict obedience to the Jewish law. In other words, Paul had a lot going for him. I think it's safe to say that it definitely seemed like he had a lot to lose, right? I'm sure we can all think of someone in our life like that. Maybe you even feel that way about yourself. This kind of perspective might sound like this. I have a well-paying job, a good reputation, a great family, a good education. So why would I need Jesus? Well, this is what Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable. All these things, good reputation, 
all the things that Paul had. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. And Paul uses a, a pretty like vulgar word for this, but counting it, you know, the translation is usually something like that, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Paul believed that gaining Christ was worth infinitely more than everything else. To gain Christ is to fill the gap in your soul with what you've always longed for. We all have a sense that something is broken and something is missing in ourselves and in the world. Everyone is looking for something to fulfill that sense of brokenness, right? I mean, we look for it in sex, money, possessions, technology, food, thrills, many other things, and of course, love. Why do people want to be contestants on The Bachelor? Why do so many people watch The Bachelor? For many, it is a part of searching for that thing that will fulfill them, that thing that will replace what is missing and fix what is broken deep in their soul. The search is over, Paul tells us. Jesus is what's missing, and he fixes what is broken. That's why gaining Christ is so valuable to him. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for our sins against God so that we can be reconciled with God. Jesus proved his devotion to us. He provided what is missing and he fixed what is broken. So what does gaining Christ mean to me? To me it means to gain a loving friend, a trustworthy companion who will always be with me through thick and thin. Jesus is a kind, gentle shepherd who cares for me and provides for me. I am sinful, selfish, and altogether unworthy of his love. And yet, he shows me mercy and forgives me of my wrongdoings. He takes joy in me and I take joy in him. This is the Jesus I know and this is the Jesus who tells us what it takes to be his disciple. But don't just take it from me. Find out for yourself. Jesus welcomes anyone who comes to him in sincerity. But before you do, heed Jesus' words and count the cost. Carefully consider the decision to bear your cross and go after Jesus. Because if you try to follow Jesus without having an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, you'll be left with disappointment. Let me say that again. If you try to follow Jesus without having an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, you will be left with disappointment. And for those of you who know Jesus already, be careful not to encourage anyone to follow Jesus half-heartedly or to follow an incomplete Jesus. In other words, don't offer someone a watered-down Jesus that doesn't properly challenge their current beliefs and practices. We're not trying to get people to sign up for a credit card. So don't talk about all the, uh, the things that sound good while avoiding talking about the cost. I mean, Jesus', Jesus message, his, his commands... All that comes with the Jesus that we know, it challenges all of our beliefs and practices to some extent. And so that's an important thing. And so clearly this kind of disciple-making does not lead to the inner transformation that Jesus longs for us to go through. So how can someone get to know the real Jesus? Well, it starts with someone getting to know real followers of Jesus, right? 
For example, as followers, as followers of Jesus, we are the kind of people who gather together to worship God every Sunday, like we're doing right now. Next weekend, of course, is a grand opening, which will be, of course, a great opportunity for people from the area, from this around the Woodstock area and around the square specifically, um, to experience what Jesus, or to experience who Jesus is by the way that we worship Him. Consider seizing an opportunity this week to extend someone an invitation to encounter Jesus at our grand opening next weekend. After all, we are called Good News Church, right? And we certainly have good news as worth sharing. So we've answered the question, who cannot be my disciple, or who cannot be a disciple of Jesus? And we've answered the question, why would I want to be a disciple of Jesus? But what about, how do I become a disciple of Jesus? Well, get to know the real Jesus. Know what you're in for. Count the cost and then follow him because he is worth it. Make him the Lord of your life. And once you are following him, treat your discipleship with sincerity. Take it seriously because Jesus treats us with sincerity and he loves us very deeply. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, giving us the truth. Not a not an incomplete picture, not a uh, not a uh, you know rose-covered lenses, not sugar not sugarcoating who you are and who your son Jesus was and is. He challenges us. He challenges our who we are, our sinfulness and our desires and the wickedness in our hearts, Lord. And I pray that we would take that seriously and we would. Um, be transformed, that we would surrender to you more and more uh, so that we might become more like you and become more like you, Jesus. Through your Holy Spirit, I pray that the Holy Spirit, you would, would guide this transformation and you would be leading us and guiding us, Lord, uh, so that we may become more like you. I pray that um, next weekend in a grand opening that you would bring people to Come experience who you are. That um, everyone today and next weekend and beyond would be changed by you and by the way that you use us for your glory to bring people to know you, to bring your kingdom into this world. By the name, or the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 